This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing awesome this week. How are you? I'm doing really good. You know what? Honest to goodness, haven't thought of how I'm doing this week until right this second, but like, I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this week has gone by a little bit fast. I felt like with last week with the holiday short week, I was all messed up last yeah. week. And now this week, I'm also messed up again, but in like the reverse way. So this last week, I always felt like I was a day ahead or wait, I forget now. I don't know. But this week, I'm confused time also. Weird. Yeah, time is being very, very weird. So that is where we're at. But yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. It's been great. Good. Good. Melissa. Yeah. How do you feel about our little intros? <laughs> <laughs> well, until about two minutes ago, I was fine with them. I don't know what's <laughs> going to come next. <laughs> so you remember when we asked people to review the show because we just never do that. And so we yeah. asked people to go and leave us a review because it really does help us out. Well, we got a lot of reviews. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I went and read through a few of them and some of them were very, very sweet. And there was this one that talked about something that we talk about, something that we talk about in the beginning often, and that is the weather. Weather. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so just for our weekly weather update, I want everyone to know <laughs> that it was in the mid to high 90s here today and very humid and hot. And I was outside. It was very sunny. So um, I did want to read this nice review, though. This was really sweet. This is from Allison. And she gave us a lovely five-star review. And it says, I was a little apprehensive when I started listening to this. I thought, huh, another mention about the weather seemed like an odd <laughs> addition to a crime podcast. Now I think I'd be disappointed if they stopped mentioning the weather. It's a delightful addition. My husband also enjoys listening to this. He says it's more lighthearted and less dark than other crime podcast I listen to. He says, I'm less worried about being murdered by a random stranger and the killer never getting caught after listening to this in comparison to other pods. Thanks for being so lovely. So wow. I feel like this is a free pass to talk about the weather as often as we want. <laughs> <laughs> Watch her be like, the dumbest thing I ever wrote in my entire life was the comment. <laughs> no, know. seriously. Thank you so much for that. Really Very sweet much. you, Allison. Yeah, there was a few on there that um, I wish we could read all the nice ones, but that one just stuck out when it was funny because she actually mentioned the weather because we always yeah. wonder if anybody cares about the weather segment. And yeah. now we know that everyone does. <laughs> <laughs> the accidental weather segment. Um, and I appreciate it that uh, everyone has written the reviews. Mandy reads them and she'll tell me the nice ones. She yes. knows that I will spiral completely if uh, negative ones. We always talk about this. If they call you out by name or me, if they call me out by name, I'm like sad. But if they call you by name, I'm mad. So yeah. there's just the... 
<laughs> so there's only two ways I can respond with those. So I'm just Mandy will just randomly tell me like, oh, we got a really nice review and read it. And it, it's very, very sweet. But I'm very unhinged and I cannot be left alone to read reviews. I will just <laughs> spiral. <laughs> All right, so we're going to get right into the episode this week. Um, it's been a little while since we've done a non-murder crime story on the show, but to be honest, I think some of our favorite episodes yes. have actually been about stories, yeah, where the nobody has been killed. Money heists aren't something that we hear about a ton, but the topic really is intriguing. Heists have been part of the plot of several successful movies, including one of my all-time favorite movies ever, which is Ocean's Eleven, and... I love that movie so much. I could honestly just sit here and talk for 30 minutes about all the reasons why I love that movie. The cast is amazing. I love everybody that acts in that movie. Melissa? I was going to say, I'll give you 30 seconds. Tell me everything you love about it. (laughs) You have to have feelings about this movie, too, I feel like. You like this cast of characters. You love Julia Roberts. It's fine. Julia Roberts (sighs) is the reason I want a trip to Washington, D.C. True story. Whenever I was in high school, they were like, name two people you'd want to have dinner with. And I can't remember who one was, but the second person I said, the lady that was asking this questions for this like prize thing for like literally an electrical co-op thing had red hair. And I was like, Julia Roberts. And I want a trip to Washington, D.C. No so way. She, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she is part of me. But um, but I'm I like the, the movie's fine. Okay, it's cool. you don't There's like it as people. much as I do, and that's okay. There's, we all have yes. different tastes. <laughs> it's my friends, but go ahead. Continue. Tell me more. Okay. Why do you love it? <laughs> I just love it. So uh, real-life heists are not very common. They don't really happen that way, um, not like they do in that movie anyway. And usually when somebody plans out a heist on a casino or a bank or anything like that, it is not very successful. This research for this week reminded me a lot of one of our favorite very early episodes of Moms and Murder, where we discussed the case of Anthony Curcio, who, if you have been listening to the show or uh, maybe just now remembered that we did this episode a long time ago, I think it maybe was even episode number six. So this was very early days. It was top 10 for sure. Yes. Anthony Curcio was a man who went to these incredible lengths to pull off an armored car robbery and used a nearby creek with a pulley system to escape with his loot. And Anthony did get caught and spent six years in jail for the crime. But then he went on to reform his life and became a very successful man through legitimate means. I love that story so much. So if you don't know that story, definitely go go back and listen to that one. So today we're going to talk about another elaborate armored car robbery. We're actually talking about the biggest one in U.S. history. And this episode is going to be about that robbery and how the same company was robbed again just a few months later. We probably don't need to spend too much time telling you about the company Loomis. If you live in the United States, you know that Loomis is something to do with money. And more than likely, you've seen the Loomis armored trucks at banks and stores coming to transport the cold, hard cash safely to the bank. Loomis is the largest integrated cash distribution network in the U.S., according to their website. And the company has been around for a very, very long time. It was founded in 1897 by Lee Loomis, who started the company to deliver supplies and safe travel for miners on the Alaskan gold rush. Later in 1925, Loomis Armored Car Service was formed to improve the method of securely transporting this cash. The company continued to expand, and by 1997, which is 100 years after Lee Loomis founded the company, they had been through numerous mergers, acquisitions, and takeovers. Loomis took over Wells Fargo Armored, which was a company that was twice the size of Loomis at the time, and they then adopted the name Loomis Fargo & Company. 
The company has continued to literally blow up over the last 20 years. They acquired Pendum and became the U.S. market leader in ATM services, and now they manage around 43,000 ATMs across the country. In 2014, they launched an international services division. Currently, the company employs over 22,000 people and has over 400 branches around the world. Loomis offers secure and comprehensive solutions for the distribution, handling, storage, and recycling of cash and other valuables for banks, retailers, and more. The company had a revenue of over $2.4 billion in 2019, so I would say this is a very successful financial company. Yeah. So it's not hard to believe that over the decades, there have been people who have worked for Loomis that have had serious thoughts about how they could rob this company, but few have been brave enough to try. And this week... We are talking about the few. I love that because it. I want to say the proud, the Marines. Yeah. But Marines should not be involved in this story at all. So in 1997 was a bit of a rough year for the Loomis Fargo business. They had no idea at the beginning of the year that the company would soon become the target of a massive heist or that there were people working for them who'd been planning said heist for months. It was late in 1996 that talks of robbing Loomis Fargo began among Kelly Campbell and Steve Chambers. Kelly and Steve grew up together as kids, and they stayed in contact even after the two married separate people and started their own lives. Eventually, they both got jobs working for Loomis Fargo and worked together for a short while. Kelly had dropped out of high school and worked at a mill, but after deciding that she didn't really want to do blue-collar work anymore, she pursued her GED and expanded her horizons. The job with Loomis was a major improvement for Kelly, but it still didn't provide the life she really wanted, which was a life of riches and luxury. Kelly lived with her husband and her two kids in a trailer at the time, and this wasn't really a big happy family situation. Kelly was extremely unhappy in her marriage. Her husband worked, but he brought in little income with his landscaping and dog training businesses, so the family was always scraping by for their next paycheck. Kelly eventually became depressed over their very bleak financial situation, and she and her husband split up several times, and she started taking Prozac and smoking pot. Even though the Loomis job was probably the best thing that could have happened for Kelly, she didn't stay there very long. After just 11 months of working for the company, she left to stay home with her kids. As we mentioned before, Kelly stayed in touch with her childhood friend Steve, and she often hung out with him and his wife Michelle. Steve, Michelle, and Michelle's two kids lived in a trailer out on eight acres somewhere near where Kelly lived. Steve and Michelle had similar financial burdens as neither of them had held really steady employment for a really long time. One evening, while Kelly and Steve were playing cards at a cookout, shortly after Kelly left her job at Loomis, Steve made a comment about how they should rob the company. You know, he's assuming that Kelly knows the ins and outs about all this. Kelly thinks he's just kidding. Pretty much everyone who's ever worked at Loomis has joked about rogging them. It's just kind of a thing. I've seen a Loomis truck and I've joked about robbing right. them. I'm never going to do it, but you know, you just see it and you know how much there's, right. you just know there's like endless money there. So it's just a thing you say. But for the next several months, Steve persistently brought up this idea and suggested this robbery. Kelly eventually warned Steve, you know, hey, this is not a good idea. It's a really dangerous and stupid plan. But the more Steve keeps bringing it up, the more Kelly starts to come around to this idea. As we said before, Kelly's always wanted this life of luxury and security. And she started to think that Steve may actually be the ticket to helping her achieve that. Steve had told Kelly about other schemes he'd successfully pulled off, including tax fraud, loan sharking, and even killing people. Huh? 
(laughs) (laughs) And if this is your friend from like childhood, you would be like, wait a minute, you did what? Like, you know, like I've known you all these years. Like, there's no way this can be real, but okay, let's go with this. (laughs) Nod through the first two and the third one, and you'd be like, oh no, this is really taking (laughs) taking a turn. So Kelly thought it was really interesting though, because Steve never really had a steady job, but he always seemed to have this steady stream of cash. So she thought, you know, maybe he does know what he's doing. Eventually, Steve managed to convince Kelly that they should plan a robbery on Loomis Fargo. But then, meanwhile, while the two were in these talks about how to pull off a robbery of this magnitude, someone beats them to it. In March of 1997, police learned that a Loomis Fargo employee had overpowered two of his co-workers and made off with an armored truck containing over $18.8 million in cash. I don't know why that number was so shocking to me. I mean, $1 million is a lot of money to tote around in a truck, but... $18 million. I just did not know that they carried that much money in those armored trucks. That was so crazy to me. Yeah. And I feel a little nervous now telling other people out there that there's that much money in those trucks. (laughs) That's so much money. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure if if somebody was really researching it, they would be able to find out pretty easily themselves. But yes, that is If I'm being honest... I didn't think the bank would have that much. No. So I don't think I... Well, it makes sense if the truck is going around to multiple locations and doing money pickups and then taking it, you know, doing the bank drops and stuff that they would have more money than just from one business. But that still blows my mind. I just can't believe $18 million. That's crazy amount of money. Oh, no, no. Yeah. So this employee was named Philip Noel Johnson. He'd been working as an armored car driver for 10 years, making a measly $7 an hour, and he was feeling like he really was just spinning his wheels and at a dead end in his life. He constantly thought about how he was hauling around millions of dollars day in and day out while he was making pennies and living no semblance of a luxurious lifestyle. On March 29th, he finally had enough. At the end of his shift, he ambushed the two coworkers he was on duty with, He didn't hurt them, but he chained one of them to a tree and handcuffed the other one to a pipe in his own house. He then drove off in the armored truck full of over $18 million. Before this heist, the most money stolen in an armored car robbery was $10.8 million, and that was in June of 1990. So obviously it didn't take officers very long to learn the name of this bandit. They thought they would surely find Philip pretty quickly because he was, after all, an amateur, and this seemed like a very poorly thought out plan from the beginning. But investigators quickly learned that Philip had been planning this for years, and he'd already headed for Mexico. Officers tracked Philip's movements from Jacksonville to Asheville, North Carolina, and eventually found the stolen armored van, but they didn't find Philip. Reports came in that he was in the Houston area, so they began searching all around in southern Texas. Months went by and police still hadn't tracked him down or recovered any of the stolen millions until August 30th, 1997. Philip was attempting to cross the border from Texas into Mexico on a bus from Houston using the alias Roger Louder. As it turned out, Roger was a real person that Philip knew and had even lived with for a couple of years. Philip had stolen his birth certificate, got a driver's license and a passport, and stole his identity. The FBI was already onto this, though, and they had the name Roger Louder flagged in the system. So when the Border Patrol agents looked him up, they found out that this was a fake name. And his answers to their questions were also suspicious. And they also found that he was carrying $10,000 in cash. 
So the Border Patrol agents contacted the FBI, and Philip was shortly arrested. Philip was sentenced to 25 years in prison for the robbery. He was released in October of 2019, right before the pandemic started, which, oh my gosh, I know that he robbed a bank, but can you imagine spending 20 years in jail and you get out and it's like, boom, yeah, 2020 just, happens? <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely not. Yeah, that'd be wild. Yeah. In the end, the FBI was able to recover almost all of the stolen $18.8 million. They found 18 million in a storage unit in North Carolina. So they also found almost $11,000 in cash that Philip had on his person. And $65,000 was found in eight different Mexican bank accounts that he set up. They weren't able to recover just $186,000 of the money, which, of course, could have been spent literally on anything. Yeah. So it seems like this was a really rather big mishap for Loomis, but in the end, they did get most of their money back. And in the grand scheme of things, losing $186,000 is a lot better than losing $18 million. But little did anyone know, there were other people planning a similar heist right that very minute. As we said in the beginning, former Loomis employee Kelly Campbell had been in talks with her longtime friend Steve Chambers about this possibility of pulling off their own heist. While Kelly no longer worked for the company, she, of course, still had contacts who did. And she knew that if she and Steve were going to actually do this, they would need help from the inside. So that's when Kelly contacted another friend named David Gant. David worked for Loomis as the vault supervisor of the Loomis Fargo office in Charlotte, North Carolina. This was a position he had held for about three years at this point. Much like Kelly and Steve, David lived within smaller means than he would have liked to. David had served in the Army in the Gulf War and got married to his wife, Tammy, in 1992 when he got out of the military. He took jobs fueling airplanes and operating forklifts until he got the vault supervisor job with Loomis in 1994. David and his wife, Tammy, also lived in a trailer and had a very tight budget. When Kelly and David met at work, they really hit it off. They had a lot in common. They were both married, they both drove trucks, and they were both from Gaston County. And some things to know about Gaston County is many of the residents in the area never really graduate from high school. A lot of times, statistically, the parents and elders work blue-collar jobs. Bankruptcy is really running rampant there. It's really just not a place where it's common or very easy for people who were born and raised there to see their way to riches. And this could potentially explain why the people in our story felt desperate enough to even try robbing this huge company like this. Pure desperation. So Kelly and David became close friends at work, and some rumored that they were dating, even though they were both married to other people. But growing up poor was something Kelly and David didn't have in common. David actually grew up in a middle-class family. He went to a private school and went with his family on Disney vacations. All of these things would be considered total luxuries to Kelly and her other friend, Steve. These were things they never did growing up, and they certainly weren't able to do with their own families. But one thing David did have in common with Kelly and Steve was his general unhappiness with his life. He was really working his butt off. He sometimes worked 80 hours a week for $8.15 an hour. He was barely ever home and really hated that he was constantly working. David didn't understand why he couldn't attain this middle-class life that he had grown up with or really what he was doing wrong or why he didn't turn out to be more successful. This could explain why he was willing to listen to Kelly when she floated this idea of planning a robbery. And there is, oh my gosh, so much more <laughs> of the story that you will not even be able to believe. So buckle up and we will get right back into it after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors.
Staying connected over the last year has been especially hard, but we have a great way to make the dads in your life feel loved and appreciated this Father's Day, and that's by giving them the gift of StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps the father figures in your life share stories from question prompts about their memories and personal thoughts throughout their life. If you're like my kids, you might be surprised to know that your parents had a life before you were ever born. It's crazy, right? Well, the same goes for my parents and my in-laws. There's this whole lifetime of stories that we were never around for. So for Christmas, we gifted my father-in-law with StoryWorth, and the stories we are reading vacillate somewhere between heartwarming to hilarious and sometimes both. StoryWorth has tons of questions you can choose from, or you can pick and choose and add your own. One of the best ones we've seen recently was a question my father-in-law answered about what his favorite song in high school was, which turned into a story of him going to the movies and meeting his first girlfriend, a moment that I'm sure he really hasn't thought about in decades, but it's now this slice of life we all get to read about. Not only will our kids be able to read about their grandfather for years to come, even their kids will be able to know their great-grandpa through these stories about his life, thanks to StoryWorth. The way StoryWorth works is after you've chosen your questions or use the question StoryWorth has, your family member will receive an email each week with a question or story prompt. They simply reply to the email, and after a year's time, StoryWorth will take all of these stories, including photos, and turn it into a beautiful keepsake book that's shipped to them for free. Give your dad the most meaningful gift this Father's Day with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com moms. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com moms for $10 off. There's never been a better time to take care of yourself than now. Whether something in your life is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, the licensed professional therapists with BetterHelp want to help you become the best you this year. BetterHelp is professional counseling that you can do right from the comfort of your home through weekly video or phone sessions. I've used BetterHelp for almost two years, and I can't tell you what a relief it is just to get all my thoughts out to a professional without ever having to leave the house. I deal with anxiety and depression and have most of my adult life. So just having someone I can talk through with scenarios or those immediate big problems that pop up in life has really been invaluable, especially this last year. Of course, anything you share with your BetterHelp counselor is completely confidential, and best of all, BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is also available. Whether you're struggling with family issues, sleep, stress, or more, BetterHelp will match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating with them in under 24 hours. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com moms. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot moms. And now back to the episode. Welcome back to this crazy episode. (laughs) (laughs) So before the break, we were talking about how Kelly Campbell, Steve Chambers, and Kelly's friend, I guess you would call maybe love interest, maybe friend David Gant, these three individuals were in talks of robbing um, the massive financial company Loomis. Very, very lofty goals to rob a company such as Loomis. Hashtag goals. Yes, exactly. By September of 1997, it had been almost a year since they first started discussing Mm. this plan. During this time, the company had already been robbed, but that did not deter Kelly and Steve from continuing to plan their own attack. One day in early September, Kelly called up her old co-worker, David, and they always had remained friends, as we said, and like I said, maybe even had a crush on each other. 
At some point, Kelly turned the conversation to robbing Loomis, but David laughed and, of course, thought that she was joking. Kelly told him, no, we're serious about this, and she asked David to just give it some thought. Just think on it. Just sleep on it. (laughs) I need several sleeps and several Xanax to think about that. Right. So he did, though. And at first, the robbery idea was what David called a mental exercise. But the more he thought about it, the more real it became and the more possible he thought that it was. But there were still some obstacles, mentally and otherwise. David was unhappy in his marriage, but he wasn't sure if he was ready to throw in the towel and completely give up on it. And he did not think that his wife, Tammy, would have anything positive to say about this robbery plan. I'm the Tammy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So he also thought about his parents and, you know, what would they think? And what if I, I'm sure also, what if I go to jail and then I'm not around for my parents, you know, at the end of their life, all kinds of these kind of thoughts he was having. David had really all but decided not to go any further with helping Kelly and Steve, but then in the middle of September, he got a bill in the mail for a credit card, and he looked over this bill, and he noticed where they had a note about how if he made this monthly payment, the minimum every month, then it would take him 30 years estimated to pay off the card. So David said that was like a slap in the face to him, and he was just angry that he had spent so much of his life working and working and working for so little money, and he would have to spend so much more time working if he ever wanted to pay off his debt. He started to feel like it wasn't such a crazy idea to consider robbing Loomis anymore. And then Kelly popped up again just in the nick of time. She called David and asked, what would it take for him to agree to do this? David said, All he needed was a new ID, and he would need help moving the money and leaving the country. And he said he really wanted Kelly to go with him. Kelly was ecstatic when David agreed to help, and she promised that this would not even be too hard. She said she already knew somebody who could plan all of it, and David would never even know this person's name or meet them. And, you know, this mystery person is, of course... Steve Chambers, who is really the one pulling all of the strings with this whole ordeal. So David had just finished reading a book on the FBI, and naturally he thought he knew all there was to know, you know, about how to outsmart them. He said, quote, For the first year, they're all over you. But after a year, they'll cut it down to two agents on the case, and after two years, you're just a file. So David thought that they would be just fine as long as they hid and didn't spend any of the stolen money for two years. After that... They're golden. Okay, is it crazy that I don't think that's the craziest thing I've ever heard? I don't think that's the craziest thing I've ever heard either. I'm like, wow, that's actually, I I (laughs) see the smartest thing in this story. (laughs) I know, as the Tammy, I'm like, back on board, I can do this. (laughs) (laughs) So Steve comes up with what would be the master plan. And the plan was this. The plan was that David would commit the actual robbery since he was the one working at Loomis. After he robs them, he gives all of the money except for $50,000 to Steve, who he doesn't know is Steve. It's just this faceless person, you know, that he doesn't know who exactly he is. So then David takes off from Mexico with that $50,000 he kept. This was really a magic number because it was supposedly at the time the most money you could take over the border without raising alarm bells and being subjected to additional screening. So once David's down in Mexico, Steve would begin wiring him more of the money. And then once things cooled down, David could return to the U.S. and everyone involved would just split up the stolen money and go on with their lives. Kelly, David, and Steve would get the biggest cuts of the fortune, but they did plan to have some what they called lower level helpers that would be paid a fee for their role in the heist. 
So David decided early on that he would have to flee the country because he'd obviously immediately be a suspect and he was, you know, the vault supervisor and they would definitely know who, you know, hey, this guy hasn't, hasn't showed up at work in a right. while. Oh, you know what? $17 million is stolen. <laughs> I wonder if it's him. So David decided, you know, he wanted to figure out where he wanted to go first and then he calculated how much cash it would take to get him there. So his long-term plan was to save the stolen money buy himself a nice boat, and spend the rest of his days cruising around the Caribbean fishing. So Steve reaches out to two other people asking for help moving this money around. One was his cousin named Scott Grant, and the other was his friend, Eric Payne. He said that he would pay each of them $100,000 for their help. Steve was also pretty ruthless about his own cut of the money, though. He actually asked Kelly if she thought, you know, should we kill David after he steals this cash? And Kelly says, no, I don't want David to be killed. But like, he's giving you millions of dollars and you're like, we should, we should kill him. We should just kill yeah, him. Yeah, I know. So before the robbery, David and Kelly meet up to finalize this plan. During this visit, Kelly led David on and made him believe that she had romantic feelings for him. She even gave him a kiss before she left. So the two agreed that David would go on to Mexico and Kelly would meet him there with her two kids. This was a total lie. Kelly had zero intention of doing this. She did not want to bring her kids on this life on the run. Can you imagine? Hi, here's your new right. dad and we're on the run. Like that's just crazy, crazy. So Kelly was really only doing what Steve had told her to do, which was, you know, tell David whatever he wants to hear, whatever we need to do to get this thing going. So David and Kelly picked the date of Saturday, October 4th, 1997 to commit the robbery. David chose this date because he knew he would have an opportunity because he'd be alone in the building once his shift ended. At around 5.45 on the morning of the planned robbery, David kissed his unsuspecting wife goodbye and drove off to work. He had a 12-hour shift ahead of him that day, and pretty much all of it went just the typical way a day of work would go. At around 6 p.m. that night, David's friend Eric drove a van that he rented to his place of employment, which was a graphics company that had a secluded parking lot where they could transfer the cash. Kelly, who was 28 at the time, drove her own truck to the lot across from the Loomis building, and then Steve and Scott pulled up and parked next to her. Kelly then called David from her car, and he said he would be ready with the money at 6.30 or 7, but when 7.20 rolled around and Kelly still hadn't heard from him, she started to get worried. But everything was just fine inside the vault. David clocked out at 6 p.m. and he used his keys to get into Loomis's main vault. The cash that he was supposed to steal weighed a total of 2,748 pounds. <laughs> yeah. And it was stacked in a pile that was 9 feet long and 4 feet high. So he had quite a job ahead of him um, to move all of this by himself. Whoa, yeah. yeah. So he put the money into a cart and then transported it from the vault to the armored truck that he was planning on stealing to drive it out of the gate. Um, he had to, of course, make multiple trips until he got it all. It wasn't until about 745 when he actually finished up. Before he left the building, David took two surveillance tapes, but what he didn't know that would later come back to haunt him is that there was a third surveillance camera that he did not know about, which makes sense, right? Like, it makes sense that the company wouldn't be like, hey, we're right. going to tell you where every single camera is. Of course, they're going to want to have one that even the management doesn't know about, you know, just for right. their own protection and in case something like this were to happen. 
In total, David made off with $17,044,200, and this was the second largest armored car robbery in U.S. history, with the first still being Philip Johnson, who we mentioned in the beginning of the episode. He stole over $18 million from Loomis just a few months before David stole this $17 million. Once the money was loaded up, David drove to the edge of the Loomis compound. But when he got there, he struggled because the chain link gate was really heavy and he couldn't get it open. So Steve actually asked if Scott would go over and help David. So keep in mind, they are not supposed to see each other's faces. This is all part of their plan so that nobody can rat each other out, I guess, or nobody can ID anybody. Um, So Scott had to cover his face and he went over to where David was and helped him get the gate open. Then everybody drove to meet Eric in the graphics company parking lot so they could transfer this money. David handed Scott an 8-inch key ring that had about 200 keys on it. He grabbed $50,000 of the cash, and then he got into Kelly's truck and headed for the airport in Columbia, South Carolina. His plan was to fly to Mexico with all that cash, but apparently he wasn't as bright as he thought he was because the airport had no international flights, and so (laughs) he didn't think that one through very well, so he ended up having to take a bus to Atlanta and fly out from there. David realized that he was going to have a really hard time carrying more than about $25,000 with him, so he gave the other $25,000 to Kelly, and then he headed off. Meanwhile, Steve, Eric, and Scott tried to open the van with all the money inside of it, but David forgot to tell them which of the 200 keys on the ring was the right one. So it took them 10 minutes to figure it out and to be able to get inside. Oh my gosh, I would just be so panicked because... You're so vulnerable just like chilling in a parking lot when you have a stolen van with $17 million inside and you're like, which key is it? Like, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine the stress level that those people must have been feeling at that moment. Think of whenever you put an adapter in your computer. Have you ever done it right the first time? No. No. I've never done it right the first time. So 200 keys is really like 400 times plus of trying a key because you're going to be upside down. Right side, maybe just me. I don't know, and but you're yeah, not, no, that's you don't have stressful. adrenaline pumping when you're trying to stick a U.S. I mean, maybe you do. Sometimes I do. I feel and like you see my emergencies. My phone's gonna die. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so yeah, definitely um, a very high, a very tense situation going yeah. on here. So once they got into the van, they started unloading the cash into these 55-gallon barrels that they brought with them. But unfortunately for them, they didn't have enough barrels for all of the money, so they had to just leave some of it behind. Bummer. The money that they did get was taken to Steve's house where his wife, Michelle, was waiting with rubber bands and a calculator, and they were ready to just tally it all up as soon as the guys arrived. Stephen divided up some of the money, but then the barrels were all filled with dog food to hide the cash, and then they were stored in a shed on Steve and Michelle's property, which I don't know if that's the greatest plan either, because I feel like if the police or the FBI come looking and they see a shed and they're like, hey, why do you have 10, 55, you know, gallon barrels of dog food? Like, how many dogs do you have? Like, you know, that's just as suspicious as opening it up and seeing cash. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's just an odd thing that you wouldn't have, so that would automatically be like, Let's look and see what's in here, you know? Exactly. So as you might imagine, it doesn't take very long for Loomis to realize they're missing over $17 million. The next morning, October 5th, Loomis employees arrived at the office to find that the vault had been emptied and an armored van was missing. And of course, authorities were immediately alerted. David's wife also reported him missing on October 5th. And once police put it together that David worked for Loomis, things became pretty clear as to what happened. There was no sign of forced entry into the Loomis building or vault, but investigators noticed the two missing surveillance tapes. 
Luckily, they had the hidden tape. And on this tape, you can clearly see the face of David Gant. And you can see him literally dance a little jig in a circle. (laughs) And uh, there's a movie that we'll talk about at the end that's based on this, but they show it in the movie. And it's the funniest thing in the entire world. And apparently pretty accurate yes um so yeah <laughs> but although if you moved all that money and you think you're about to get away with it i can see a, a small victory yeah dance could of course be yeah in order yeah the fbi immediately begins looking for him they find his truck uh it was unlocked near the loomis building and of course he's nowhere to be found they put out these wanted posters with his info and his face on them and over the next two days police speak with about a hundred people that were connected to david So everyone who knows David is completely shocked to hear that he's involved in this robbery, but no one's more shocked than his wife, Tammy. The FBI learned about David's relationship with Kelly at this point, and other Loomis employees said they were basically unofficially dating at one point. So the FBI went and talked to Kelly. She said that, yeah, she did know David, and she'd done drugs with him before, but said she had no idea. She had nothing to do with any sort of theft. But it wasn't long before FBI investigators located the missing Loomis van. It was parked two miles away in the woods, and in it, they found $3.3 million inside, as well as a 38 caliber pistol that was issued by Loomis. They also found the two surveillance tapes. Okay, what is the point of taking the tapes if you're going to be like, we're just going to move the evidence from point A to point B? Good luck finding it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So from this point, The investigation was pretty easy and smooth for the FBI. They quickly figured out that David had to have accomplices, and phone records showed that someone used David's own phone to beep him while he was busy stealing this money. The pager entry just said 143, which if you grew up in the 90s or early 2000s, you know that 143 is shorthand for I love you. And what does it mean? Is it like the first, fourth, what is it? Because oh. I has one letter, love has four letters, you has three letters. So one, four, three was like numerical way to say I love you. Yeah, I feel well, like we that done was better, a thing but... when I was in like sixth grade. So I didn't really, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't one, four, three anyone at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I was one, four, threeing all over town. No, I'm just kidding. Um, my husband will one, four, three sometimes. Like he'll write yeah. one, four, three. Oh, yeah. that's such not a... to me, just oh. in general. Oh. <laughs> no. To who? To what? I should look further into this. No, he's done that to me. I'm just kidding. (laughs) So yeah. um, But anyway, that's what this person was doing. So the story is actually featured on America's Most Wanted. And part of the coverage included Loomis announcing that they were offering a $500,000 reward, probably from that $3.3 million they found, to anyone with information that led to the arrest of the perpetrators and the recovery of the missing funds. You won't believe this. But there is still so much more to get into in this story (laughs) after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Uncommon Goods is the online shop filled with the totally unique and the unexpected. There you'll find all those unique ideas for gifts for those hard to buy for people in your life, or if you just want to outgift someone else, Uncommon Goods is the way to do it. Now that you're getting bombarded with those bridal shower and wedding invites, make your first stop for gift giving at the Uncommon Goods site. My only issue with Uncommon Goods is that I want to get one of everything, but I had to adult and just picked one and ended up deciding on the ripe fruit bowl. What's so great about it is that I'm able to put the ready to eat fruit on the top of the bowl, seated on a beautiful maple tray, while things like avocados that are almost never ready to eat when I purchase them go in the glass vented bowl below. 
Plus my bananas hang on a built-in hook connected to the bowl, so not only is this totally functional in a way I didn't know I needed, but it's also beautiful and unique to any other fruit rolls I've ever seen. You can find so much more like this on the Uncommon Goods site. And Uncommon Goods is picky about what they allow on their site. They look to feature products that are not only unique, but high quality and often handmade or designed in the U.S. And with every purchase, Uncommon Goods gives $1 to a nonprofit of your choice. To date, they have given more than $2 million. Plus, Uncommon Goods is now introducing Uncommon Experiences, which means now you can take live online classes for things like cooking, mixology, and even flower arranging from hand-picked artists and experts. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash momsandmurder. That's uncommongoods.com slash momsandmurder for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods. We're all out of the ordinary. If you're looking for a way to brighten up your face, literally, look no further than Thrive Cosmetics. Thrive Cosmetics is home to all of your favorite beauty products, including Thrive's Brilliant Eye Brightener. I have this in Stella, and not only is it so easy to put on, it instantly illuminates and awakens my eyes for a perfect everyday glow. I am more than a little obsessed with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara, which is the best-selling mascara one is literally sold every five seconds, and for great reason. It's flake-free, smudge-free, and clump-free, making it perfect for all-day wear. I can put zero makeup on besides the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara, and it instantly makes me look refreshed. And best of all, their mascara, as well as all of Thrive Cosmetics, meet their clean beauty standards, which means they're cruelty-free and never tested on animals. I really love that Thrive Cosmetics goes beyond beauty, and they are made using clean, high-performance, skin-loving ingredients. So not only do you look great while wearing them, thanks to their clinically proven formulas, they actually improve your skin over time. Plus, all Thrive Cosmetics are formulated without parabens, sulfates, and phthalates. And I love, love Thrive Cosmetics' bold mission with Bigger Than Beauty. For every product purchased, they donate to help women thrive. One place they've given that really impressed me is their donation of over $100,000 for their giving partner, Baby to Baby, who's focused on helping families facing poverty receive basic necessities like clothing, cribs, diapers, and more. We love everything about Thrive Cosmetics. Their products are the best we've ever used, and their Bigger Than Beauty mission is truly inspiring. You're going to love them as much as we do. Visit thrivecosmetics.com moms for 15% off your first order. This is an exclusive offer you can only get here. That's Thrive, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash moms for 15% off your first order. Thrivecosmetics.com slash moms. Just like Lenny Kravitz, I want to get away. I want to fly away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while I'm stuck on the ground for now, I can settle for a new kind of journey all with a fun mobile game. Step into the enchanting world of June Parker with June's Journey, where a spectacular adventure awaits you. And the best part? No plane tickets needed. Bid farewell to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a realm where intrigue dances with elegance, all thanks to the drama-filled escapades of our charming heroine, June Parker. Whether you crave a captivating mystery or simply wish to escape the humdrum of daily life, June's journey is your portal to excitement. Join June on her quest to uncover hidden family secrets and navigate the tangled web surrounding her sister's demise. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and dive into a world where each corner holds a new clue and every twist leaves you on the edge of your seat. But hold on to your pearls because June's Journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm knee deep in the fifth chapter and each section is really more delightful than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect oozes sophistication and refinement. So don't hesitate any longer, step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure unfold. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And now back to the episode.
All right. So before the break, we were talking about how the FBI was on the hunt for David Gant. They cannot find him anywhere. They know that he is the one who has broken into the main vault at Loomis, stolen the $17 million, and has made off with it. Not all of it. They found $3.3 million of it. Now they have a reward out. There's coverage on America's Most Wanted. Things are really getting heated in this investigation. Yeah. So something I found kind of funny about this case is that even though it involves such a massive company like Loomis, the robbery was actually dubbed something else in the media, and they called it the Hillbilly Heist. They allegedly called it this because of the way the robbers spent the money that they stole. As we said before, David took off to Mexico and ended up renting a room at the Hotel La Tortuga in Playa del Carmen under a fake name, Mike McKinney. Mike McKinney was a real person that Steve Chambers knew, and actually paid $50,000 for his ID, which he then gave to David, essentially selling his own ID for $50,000, which is just bananas to me. Well, once I had to confirm the story with my sister after I read this, I'm like, I, I remember something like this. I gave my sister my ID for free. Right. I think accidentally. <laughs> Did I tell you about that? She told me, I was like, what happened? Remind me what happened. She, I had an extra ID because I'd lost mine. Then I found it. So we go to this club thing, me at a club, and she's 17 and you can get in at 18 in Tallahassee because we're just wilding out out there apparently. And they, I went through with my ID. She comes through three people behind with the same ID and the bouncer takes it, cuts it up in her face. Oh my gosh, no way. <laughs> I, just, I was like, I don't remember though. Like neither of us remember if I knew she was doing that. I must have because she um, wasn't old enough to get in, but you only had to be 18. But yeah, I love that. What an idiot idea. We could have been hillbilly. Oh my gosh. Part of the hillbilly heist. That's a terrible idea. But yeah, $50,000 sounds great since I got my fake ID cut up yeah. two feet from me. <laughs> I got busted with a fake ID once too. It was definitely much scarier. There was a police officer involved, so that was not fun. Mandy! That's for another time. <laughs> if you remind me at the end, I will elaborate on that Oh, story. I will. Yeah, I will. <laughs> okay, so in Mexico, David spoke to Kelly weekly using calling cards. He was living it up and having really a blast down there. David wasn't even in hiding or anything. He just went around doing all the touristy things like parasailing and scuba diving, deep sea fishing, touring the Mayan ruins, and he was really just on this extended vacation living it up. By November, though, David was already running low on money, and he told Kelly that he needed more cash, so Kelly said that she would relay the message to Steve. Steve then had the real Mike McKinney deliver cash to David. It was in mid-November that Mike brought the money to Mexico, but in a twist, he decided once he got to Mexico, he didn't want to give David that money. So instead, he took the $10,000 and started spending it on himself. <laughs> yeah. So he is down there partying. He's hanging out on the beach. And a little while later, he goes back home and tells Steve, hey, you know what? I couldn't find the guy, David. Sorry. Uh, you know, sorry about that. I spent $10,000. Yeah, exactly. I don't don't ask me where the $10,000 is. Yeah, exactly. So Steve told Mike, um, no, you need to go back to Mexico again, and I'll give you the address to David's hotel. So Mike showed up a second time to the hotel, and he had $8,500. And he told David that that was all that Steve had given him. David said this wasn't enough. And now he's starting to worry that he might not even get his $5 million cut of the stolen money after all. If they're already being this stingy, you know, with the money and they don't even want to give him more than $8,000, you know, he's thinking, how am I ever going to get Steve to give me right. the $5 million that he's supposed to give me? So he's kind of getting a little concerned now. 
In late November, Mike went back to Mexico for a third time, but this time, David finally told him the truth about where all this money was coming from. He told him that the funds he was helping carry across the border was the stolen Loomis Fargo money. And Mike, instead of thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to call the FBI and just collect the $50,000 reward or whatever it is, or was it $500,000? $500,000, yeah. yeah. That was not his first thought. His first thought was, I should be getting paid more. (laughs) (laughs) This is hazard pay at this point. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So after Mike left again, David was then contacted by a stranger in Mexico named Robert. And he realized through this conversation with this guy, Robert, that Mike had been talking around and looking for somebody to have somebody killed in Mexico. And David starts realizing, oh my gosh, Mike is trying to find somebody to kill me. So David caught on, you know, after this Robert guy finds him. And after that, he then contacts Kelly and he tells her that he is never going to be alone with this Mike guy ever again. He doesn't want Mike bringing money to him. He doesn't want Mike contacting him or anything like that. So as for Kelly, she wasn't really doing so great herself in the months following the heist. She was very on edge. She had mood swings. She was just really, really stressed out. She started eating a lot and she gained 30 pounds in just a few short months. She also started taking small sums of money to the bank and depositing it sporadically, trying to go unnoticed. And she spoiled her kids during this time. It was probably out of guilt, but she was buying each of them different bikes and video games and computer games, new toys and more. And it was so much that her mom even took notice, you know, and asked, like, how are you affording all this new stuff for the kids? And Kelly just said, don't worry about it. If I couldn't afford it, I wouldn't do it. As far as Steve Chambers and his 24-year-old wife Michelle were concerned, they wasted no time getting their money all squared away. The first weekday after the heist, Michelle took five grand to a bank and asked what the limit was for a cash deposit before they required paperwork. But don't worry, she told the teller it wasn't drug money. So Oh, yeah, don't worry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the teller feels weird about this, and she files a suspicious activity report, but the FBI actually wouldn't see it for two more months. So Steve and Michelle moved much of the money into different safety deposit boxes at different banks, which they had different family members rent out for them. Less than a month after the robbery, the couple bought a $635,000 house in cash in a very high-end neighborhood 50 miles east of Charlotte. This house is massive. It's 6,700 square feet, five bedrooms, five bathrooms, and a four-car garage. It has fancy finishes like a marble foyer, a wet bar, a wine cellar, a fireplace in the master suite, and a spa bathroom. David later said something that we can pretty much all agree with. Buying this house this size was completely idiotic for them. You don't go from, you know, modest means to a mansion without raising really big red flags. So Steve tells the movers that, you know, he won big in Vegas. I wouldn't know enough to be like, that's not possible. Right. When the neighbors questioned who they were and how they afforded the house, Steve said that he was an ex-football player. And so he's a bigger guy, so no one really questions it. And this is, of course, before you just Google everything to verify. You probably had to bing or something. You know that's not going to get any good results. <laughs> But the chambers didn't stop there. They ordered custom cabinets and wallpaper and had this flashy wrought iron fence installed. Michelle went pretty nuts decorating the place with a leopard print runner for the gorgeous winding staircase and matched it with a $500 leopard print throw. They kept some of the things that were there from the previous owners, including some furniture and a painting of Elvis done on velvet, 
we'll have to post that on like Instagram because it is truly it's something. It is something. Um, it's definitely <laughs> something. So there's other like weird paintings and stuff all in the house too. Um, in early November, Michelle took a suitcase with uh, $200,000 inside a bank to deposit, but she makes a very critical mistake. The money she brings in is all wrapped in Loomis Fargo wrappers. So the teller, you know, comes up with an excuse as to why they couldn't accept this deposit because it's obviously been stolen. So a week later, the Chambers couple buys themselves a brand new white BMW Z3 convertible and paid for it in cash. Michelle starts going on shopping sprees at posh boutiques and would tell the staff there that, you know, my husband's a wealthy casino owner who has casinos in Atlantic City and owns laundromats in Texas, which feels very random. And just before Michelle turned 25, she treated herself to breast implants. And finally, the Chambers bought an entire business furniture discount center. They renamed it M&S Furniture Gallery and immediately renovated it. Steve's friend and one of the accomplices, Eric Payne, also lived it up a little with his money. He, I feel like he did it more the way I would do it, which was he paid off his credit card. Right. He took a three-week-long <laughs> three vacation. He deposited $7,500 in the bank. He then rented and drove a new Cadillac for about three weeks, but eventually bought a Chevy Tahoe and a Harley motorcycle. He bought three round-trip tickets to Atlanta with all the return flights being in first class. He also bought himself a new trailer home and got a stretch limo to take his seven-year-old daughter and 10 of her friends out for steak on her birthday. He also was very generous to other members of his family, including his wife, who he bought breast implants for, as well as his two sisters. What a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so meanwhile, the FBI is obviously still investigating the whereabouts of, you know, this cool $17 million that is missing. And the tips were really rolling in. On November 12th, an informant told the FBI about Steve and how he had moved from a trailer to a mansion out of nowhere. A week later, another informant told the FBI about Eric Payne's strange behavior. They said he quit his job and he was spending a lot of money for someone who just quit their job. Authorities started to connect the dots and piece together this puzzle. They knew that David and Kelly were close, and they also knew that Steve and Eric had been spending a suspicious amount of money that they didn't normally have. But the FBI still didn't even know where David was. They actually started to worry that maybe he had been killed because they really could not find him anywhere. The FBI kept a very close eye on all of the other key players, trying to figure out if and how they were all connected to each other. In December, Kelly put herself on their radar when she purchased a $30,000 minivan in cash, and then she registered it under one of Steve's aliases. And this is how the FBI established a solid link between Kelly and Steve. Around the same time, Steve's wife, Michelle, deposited about $8,000 in a bank. The initials that were on the Loomis wrappers for this cash that she deposited belonged to a person who hadn't worked there since before the robbery. So the FBI knew that the money Michelle was trying to deposit was some of the stolen Loomis money. That was really more than enough evidence to move in on the suspects, but the FBI wanted more. They wanted to know where the rest of the money was hidden, where David was, and who else was involved in this plot. So they just kept observing everybody. In early 1998, the FBI tapped all of their phones and began listening to their conversations. In the first week, they overheard a lot. Steve called a jeweler asking what the most expensive Rolex for women that they carried was, and Michelle was making calls about interior decorating. Michelle called her sister to brag about her three-and-a-half-carat diamond ring that cost 
$43,000. Also, I'm sorry. I don't care if I even am a millionaire. I am never wearing a $43,000 piece of jewelry. That is insanity. No. Well, I just don't get it. Yeah, I just feel like you're you're at risk of your finger being cut off. I, I, but you hear people like that have that, but then they lock those up and then they wear fake replicas. Okay, just buy the fake replica. Right. Clearly, I've never meant to be rich. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly, because I do not understand that at all. Steve also told Michelle that Kelly wanted to get liposuction for her butt. And um, the FBI this figured out- was definitely out- before the 2000s because you would be <laughs> doing the opposite now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The FBI actually figured out very quickly that anyone who wanted money had to go through Steve to get it. They really had to ask him for permission, and he was the one controlling the purse strings here. So Steve made one call, you know, during this first week while they're listening in on all their phones. Steve made one call about wiring $2.5 million to overseas accounts, and they also heard him talking about buying a nightclub, which to the FBI meant that he was hoping to hide this money in a high-cash business, as money launderers often do. So lastly, they overheard Steve on the phone with Mike asking him to go down to Mexico again, this time to kill David. Everyone involved in this was using their own phones, uh, but Kelly sometimes did use a payphone, the same payphone every single time. So the FBI also tapped the payphone. The more officers listened, the more clear it became that things were getting really tense for all these bandits. Steve was so paranoid that he was carrying a gun everywhere and had Mike McKinney sort of playing a bodyguard for him. Steve started to have these thoughts that things would be better if David wasn't in the picture because he thought, you know, the FBI is only looking for David and not the rest of them. So his thought is, if you get rid of David, the FBI would never find the others, and I'm sure they'll never keep looking for the $17 million. Steve worried that if the FBI did catch up to David, he would confess and tell them about the others involved. Of course he would. He would get a better deal. That's common sense. (laughs) So the agents heard Kelly tell Steve about how Dave didn't want Mike dropping off this money to him anymore, and so someone else was going to need to go down to Mexico to deliver cash to him. In late February, Steve told Kelly to find out where David was. So she calls him from this payphone, and he says he's in Cozumel, and she said someone's going to bring you money, and she tells him that she loves him. Kelly also said, quote, I thought being a rich woman would make me happy, but now I'm not so sure, end quote, which is basically the real-life version of the grass isn't always greener on the right. other side. You you want what you Mo money, have. mo problems? Yeah, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know we were bringing Biggie into this. So so Kelly then tells Steve that David's in Cozumel, and Steve calls up Mike, and they talk about how they could somehow smuggle a gun into Mexico so that Mike could shoot David. Steve tells Mike that David does not want to see him anymore, so they couldn't just tell him, like, hey, Mike's coming down, That you know, the guy you don't want to see. So Mike needs to go down there, but he needs to be careful that he's not being spotted. So they planned on sending a decoy to, quote unquote, bring money to David to lure him into their trap. Despite telling David that she loved him just a few hours before, Kelly told Steve at this point she didn't care if David died. Wow. Wow. I know. I just can't. It blows my mind when people are just so like flippant and nonchalant, like, "Mm, yeah, okay, that's fine. If you want to have him killed, that's right. I just can't imagine ever saying like, yeah, okay. And it seems like a big part of why he went along with this was because he really did care about her or, you know, was infatuated with her or something. Like, she was the only one that could get him to go along with this. Right. Uh, He would have never done this on his own. So it is like, 
sad for him that, you know, somebody's like literally turning you over to be like, yeah, you can you can die. I don't right. Care. So the FBI wasted no time tracing this call and they figured out exactly where David was. And that's when they headed down to Mexico. On March 1st, 1998, two FBI agents and an Interpol agent found and arrested David and had him on a flight back to North Carolina the very next day. The following morning, March 2nd, Steve and Michelle Chambers were arrested by federal agents at their home. Mike McKinney was arrested in the hotel room that he was living in, and Kelly and Eric were also arrested in their respective trailer homes. Scott was also arrested for his small role in the crime, but we don't know where he was when he was arrested, but they did get him too. In each of their houses, investigators found cash totaling $6.6 million, and most of the remainder of the money was located by the FBI, but they couldn't account for about $2 million of it, which they believed was spent before everybody was arrested. As we said, they were making lots of cash purchases. I'm sure they took into account the BMW and the $600,000 home yeah, and all of those things. Yeah, it's months and right. months and lots of people. Exactly. Yeah, and so they're all spending money, like going crazy on their Mexican vacations and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of money there that they cannot account for just yet. So in total, there were 21 people that were arrested in connection with this robbery. Everyone except for one of them took a plea deal. Many got probation, but a few got prison time. The one person who did not plead guilty was an attorney who assisted Stephen with purchasing the $635,000 home um, in cash, and he was found guilty of money laundering and was sentenced to eight years. David pleaded guilty to bank larceny and money laundering and was given seven and a half years in federal prison, as well as ordered to pay $3.8 million in restitution. Kelly pleaded guilty to the same charges, plus conspiracy to commit murder for hire, and she was sentenced to almost six years in order to pay over $4 million in restitution. Steve pleaded guilty to the same charges as Kelly, although he had 13 counts of money laundering instead of just one, and he was sentenced to 11 years and three months and was ordered to pay $3.8 million in restitution. Steve's wife, Michelle, also pleaded guilty to larceny, fraud, and seven counts of money laundering, and she was sentenced to seven years and eight months. Her sentence would have actually been shorter if she hadn't hidden this $43,000 ring from the FBI after she was arrested. I guess whenever they caught her and they're trying to recover all of their funds and everything, she decided she's going to hang on to this $43,000 ring. And what are you going to do with it? You're going to be in jail. Well, I guess she's thinking like, hey, after I get out of jail, I'm going to go dig up this ring and and have it. What are you going to do with it? You can never – a ring that is that price – Definitely has a serial number in the diamond or somewhere. Like, they're going to know that it was a stolen ring. You know what I'm saying? Or that it was bought with the stolen money. So yeah, I just – none of this made any sense. So uh, she was ordered to pay $4.8 million in restitution. I have comments about restitution. I just feel – I do they ever get that amount of money or these people just pay until they die? Because there's no way these particular people people are paying $4 million – No, never, ever, ever, ever. Scott and Mike were all sentenced for larceny and money laundering. Uh, Eric and Scott were sentenced to six and a half and four years, respectively. And Mike was given 11 years because he also had the conspiracy to commit murder charge. So we know you're wondering, where are they now? Well, for starters, they are all out of prison. David was released in 2004. He is now remarried and has a daughter. And as of 2016, he was living in Florida, Hi, neighbor, doing construction work. Um, He says the IRS sends him a statement every year reminding him about the amount he owes them. They take his entire refund every year when he files his taxes. And he says, you know, 
if he couldn't pay off that credit card that he was worried about before, he's never going to be able to pay this $3.8 million debt back. David also wrote a book that got published in 2018 called The Book of David, A New Path After a $17 Million Misstep. I like that he used the word missed up. (laughs) Just a little oopsie. (laughs) Yeah, oopsie daisy. So he says in the book that he has no regrets and that sitting in prison for six years actually gave him time to think really long and hard about his life. And he realized that most of the problems he was having were really due to himself. Being in prisons, he said, helped him face the reality and overcome his issues so that he could go on to have a better life after his relief. He said if it weren't for going to prison, he would have never had these revelations. I kind of love that. Oh, me too. He, I saw it. Um, it was like a twenty-five minute video from like Charlotte News or something, and he was interviewed in it, and it was so interesting. But he just seems like he that was like his life before, and he's thankful for how everything turned out. Like he loves his life now. He's really happy now, and he doesn't have any of that money. Like he'll never see any yeah. money because the government will always take it from him. <laughs> you know, because of what happened. Right. So yeah, it was pretty interesting. So Kelly was released from prison in 2004, and two years later in 2006, Steve was released. His wife, Michelle, had already been released in 2005. By 2007, everyone involved in this that was arrested was released from prison. This story is such a wild ride, and it's so crazy, and if it sounds familiar, that's because Hollywood had to get their hands in it and make a movie about it. The movie is Masterminds, and it stars Zach Galifianakis as David, Kristen Wiig plays Kelly, Owen Wilson plays Steve, and there's so many other amazing actors. I know Leslie Jones is in it. Who else? Oh, Jason Sudeikis plays Mike McKinney. There's so many. It's everyone I love just in one movie. Like, this is my Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. This is mine. (laughs) This is very a very Melissa's uh, version, I feel like. Right? Yeah. Yes. That that actually makes perfect sense that you would like Ocean's (laughs) Eleven and this would be mine. So David served actually as an unpaid consultant for the movie. He couldn't get paid because he still owes the government money, which that's where I don't really understand how that works. Like, isn't that an independent thing or can you just profit off of this crime? That's That's what I I think. Yeah, I think he's not allowed to profit off the crime yeah so david wants everyone to keep in mind that this movie is a comedy and it's not a documentary there's a lot of stuff that they take a lot of liberties with in this story so it's not entirely factual and every part of the movie isn't real he did say though that the part where david does a victory dance uh we mentioned that before in the vault was real and it's so funny it's Zach Galifianakis is not like my go-to for everything but anything he's in he's just so funny and he does a great job as like what uh, David referred to as a dumbed down version of himself and he said he's just fine with him playing this dumbed down version and he thought the movie was really funny and it's so funny it is so good yeah, this is a story that Haley, who helps us research, she brought it to our attention. And I knew this had been a movie, but I hadn't seen it. Like, it's just one of those that you hear about and then you don't hear about. And then, like, Hilaria Baldwin is tweeting something crazy. So then I get, you know, on that rabbit trail. And so um, I'm so excited that we did this and uh, love the story. If you haven't seen the movie, you have to see the movie. Um, it's directed by Jared Hess, which you might not recognize the name, but he's the guy that did Napoleon Dynamite. And he did um, Murder Among the Mormons, that documentary that was just out. He did Last Man on Earth. I think Nacho Libre. He's done so many movies the that Dewey you Cox probably story. love. <laughs> that, I don't movie, know if he did Dewey it Cox. It reminded me a lot of that, like the way the- Walk Hard or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yes. Uh, it reminded yeah. me a lot of that kind of, it was like that kind of movie. 
it, yeah, very much so. A lot of the same people are probably in that too. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to see a movie that really will just like have you literally laughing out loud, I laughed so much in this movie. This is the one to see. There's a scene where he like has a disguise. Did you see that with the the contacts that she gets for him that just I was crying. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> it's so fun. I love doing stories like this every once in a while, just mixing it up. And yeah, you know, me it's, too. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, me too. Me too. And yeah, it is always nice to do one where um, there is no murder. Even though we are doing a show called Moms and Murder, it is just didn't a, think that through all the way. Yeah, yeah. It is a true crime podcast. We cover all types of crime. Yeah, featuring yeah. yourself, Mandy, and your dear friend, Melissa. That's yep. right. That's right. That's right. And the intro, that will never change because that's that's how, where we're at now. Exactly. <laughs> All right, guys. So we're going to move on and turn the page and go to our last thing before we go. And Melissa, this week, I think we decided that we're just going to do some crazy news headlines out of North Carolina because this yes. one was definitely a crazy one when it was coming out, I'm sure. So we we went and found some other North Carolina headlines that are interesting. Florida always gets a lot of Florida man flack. Yeah, don't be offended, North Carolina. Yeah, please don't Pay be offended. Your dues. We make fun, yeah, exactly. We make fun of ourselves all the time and so does everyone else. So, we are here to join in the fun and Find some We funny. joke because we Find care. Some. We joke because we care. Absolutely. Okay, so Melissa, do you want to go first? Sure. My first story comes out of Hickory, North Carolina. There was a guy named Donnie Guy, and he robbed two cash registers from a restaurant, and then he vanished. But it didn't take very long for the cops to find him because they followed the trail of the white register tape all the way to his house where he was trying to break open the register. But the white tape just followed oh. all the way. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's... He was not part of the hillbilly heist. They would have gotten caught a lot sooner. For sure. <laughs> okay. So this one I have, I don't think all of mine are actually crimes. Two of them are not crimes. This one is a crime and it actually kind of goes hand in hand with today's episode. So I thought it was really funny. Dig this. Stolen excavator used to steal ATM. What is going on in North Carolina? <laughs> That's, <laughs> I like that though. That's, I mean, if you're going going to steal an ATM, why would you use your own excavator? You've got yeah. to steal that too. Get it all, get as many charges piled up. Maybe you'll get like a buy one, get one free out of jail card. I don't know. I Serve know. two crimes, get one off, half well, off. Well, it was I funny. Yeah, it was funny because the little blurb about this, when I looked it up, it, start, it says, this is some Ocean's Eleven type planning. A thief Aww. stole an excavator from a construction site and used it to knock over and steal an ATM. Police details are far and few, but reports say a short man climbed into the excavator around Aww. 1 a.m., stole it, then proceeded to drive 200 yards, knock over the ATM machine, and steal it. So I what happened think to they the needed ATM? To describe that. He dropped Sorry. it into an await. He dropped it into an awaiting vehicle and made off with an undisclosed amount of cash. So yeah. So this is. Oh, a but he got away with it. Possibly in North Carolina. It sounds like he got away with it. I didn't look huh. for an update to this story, but. At the time of the story, he had gotten away with it. Interesting. <laughs> interesting. All right. Well, maybe it wasn't such a bad idea. So uh, my next one, it just says from North Carolina, this man successfully broke into a bank's basement through the street level window. But while he's breaking into this window, he cuts himself up really badly. And he realized that number one, he wasn't going to be able to get the money from where he was. Number two, he couldn't climb back through this window where he was, where he had went through and he's all bloody and bloodied and everything. Number three, he is bleeding very badly. So instead, he locates a phone and dials 911 asking for help. Can you imagine? <laughs> I wasn't actually coming in here to rob them. Um, oh. I left my muffin at my desk. Could I go get it, please? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Poor guy. 
I mean, not poor guy. You kind of give it to yourself. But yeah, yeah. Okay, here's a weird one. So this is a lovely lady in Asheville, North Carolina. Her name is Adrienne Antonson. She's an insect artist, and she creates bug sculptures from human hair. Okay, I hate that. There's too much happening in that sentence. I truly hate that, yeah. Bug (laughs) sculptures from human hair. So I have a picture of one in front of me that looks like a fly, maybe, but it's like... I mean, if we can't even identify It's made out of human hair. It sure is. Uh, Ripley's <sighs> bought six of her mast hair pieces. Ha ha ha. There's a little pun there. Mm, and <laughs> <do that. laughs> so that is that. Uh, a quote from her says, when I was young, insects were my favorite thing. They captivated me. I am humble to say they are so tiny, but can do so many things we can do and fly as well. She really likes bugs and she makes them out of human hair. I don't know where she gets the hair. But yeah, that's the question. <laughs> Do what you want. I won't yuck your yum, but that is, I'm not okay with that. Yeah, we should look into that a little more closely. You might have a follow up on that story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my last one is uh, from Raleigh, North Carolina. Apparently, there was a stabbing, and there are people that come to the scene and they're talking to this woman who was a witness to the crime. And this 38 year old guy jumps into the woman's car and drives away. And he's arrested the next day because he was easily identified by the cops who were there because of the stabbing (laughs) and saw him steal this lady's car. (laughs) I just can't imagine what goes through your head when you like see police officers around and you're like, I'm going to steal a car from right here. Right? Like I always thought like whenever I go to like something that's near a police station, I'm like, well, I've never felt safer in my car than I do right this moment. Nobody's going to mess with it. But apparently, apparently nobody cares. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Okay, my last one, um, again, not a crime, but just something interesting and it's kind of adorable. Um, This is from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and this is from several years ago, 2012. Missing macaque search requires North Carolina officials to play baby monkey sounds in hopes of recapturing it. Oh, my goodness. Searchers trying to find an eight-pound monkey that escaped more than a week ago are now playing sounds of a baby monkey to try to recapture the wayward animal. I hope they found that monkey. I know. (laughs) Oh, that's actually so cute. I know. Yeah, that's How cute is it that, like, it would be lured in by the sounds of a baby? Oh, my gosh. That's just so sweet. Monkeys are Um, so fun. They are. Our dog got out a couple weeks ago in the neighbor's yard, and I was not playing songs of the tiny puppy. I was screaming bad words, like with a squeezy toy, just being like, please come back. (laughs) Don't you love that? When my dog runs away, I'm like, the way that I try to get her back, like, there's no way she's going to come to me with the way that I am, like, freaking out and, like, Mm -hmm. yelling and, like, flailing my arms and running around. Like, she is totally not going to come to me at all. I do not look fun or happy or anything. (laughs) So, Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like trying to use a nice voice and screaming. My son's screaming, we're never going to see him again. No. And I'm like, <laughs> I need you to calm down. <laughs> it's always fun. It's always something. Mandy, this was a great episode. I really, I mean, if I was going to leave us a review, I right. would review this episode and say it was a great episode. Yeah. And then you could read it to me and I'd be so happy. <laughs> yes. And huge thanks to our lovely, lovely friend and researcher, Haley. She yes. did such a great job uh, researching this case. And always. Yes, always. She does great, such great work. All right, guys. So that was it for this week. We will see you next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. 
please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com